Last week we started our series in the book of Luke, and we're introduced to Luke the writer, the physician, the historian, who set out to record an orderly account of the life of Christ in his ministry, writing to his friend Theophilus, uh, most likely a Gentile convert, Theophilus in Greek meaning lover of God that his friend would have confidence in Christ, confidence in the Scriptures, that he would have confidence that this was an exact record of the life of Christ. And by extension, us reading the Gospel of Luke, we would have confidence in the Scriptures so that we would have confidence in Jesus Christ. But Luke's orderly account is not divorced from the Old Testament. It's not like the meta-narrative ended and now we're picking up a completely different narrative. God's story spans all of human history. And Luke's going to start his orderly account by connecting the Old Testament with the New. Not because... He was just being a good writer or author, but because the New Testament story picks up right where the Old Testament story leaves off. It's not something contrived by Luke. It's what God did, and he's just recording history. Let me read to you from Malachi chapter 4, which is the, the last prophetic words of the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And then God goes silent for 400 years. 400 years, no additional revelation from God. Think about that. Why do we put such a high emphasis in this church on the Word of God? This is God speaking to us. God revealing Himself to us. If God had not spoken to us, we would have no idea who God is. We would know from creation that there must be a creator, someone powerful, someone beautiful. But we wouldn't know him personally. We wouldn't know who we really are. We wouldn't know our purpose. We wouldn't know why the world is broken and we wouldn't know how it is going to be fixed. And we certainly wouldn't know the future at all. We'd have no hope. And so God's revelation is precious to us. The Bible says all we need for life and godliness contained in these pages. And so for God to be silent for 400 years to his chosen people, Israel, must have been a terribly long silence. Imagine when your loved one gives you the silent treatment. I can only handle it for a few minutes. 400 years of, of God who is love, silent. But because of where Malachi left off, the people knew that Messiah would be coming. In fact, he's referred to figuratively as the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, we would think of him as the S-O-N of righteousness. But the day of the Lord is coming, and when Jesus did come, the first time he brought salvation. 
And when he returns the second time, he will bring judgment. A terrible day of the Lord. And before he comes, a prophet, an an Elijah, would come. In fact, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, some people think you're Elijah. The fulfillment of Malachi 4. We know from Jesus that John the Baptist was that Elijah. John the Baptist. Today we're going to hear from God him breaking the silence. What would God say after 400 years of silence? And Luke, again, recorded that to his friend Theophilus, but we get to hear God's revelation to mankind. Last week, I I talked about the intertestamental period, that time between the Old Testament closing and the New Testament opening. Remember that when we date history, uh, before Jesus came, they weren't counting down to his birth the way we record the calendar. We forget that, and it's almost like uh, when Y2K came along, and we were like, man, what's going to happen when we hit 2000? Is everything going to come crashing down? Is everything going to... They weren't counting down to zero. That dating system happened after Jesus came. So keep that in mind. What, what happened in the intertestamental period? How did we get to where we'll be in Luke today? If you're like me, you kind of fell asleep during history in school. I confess, the history buffs are angry at me right now. Um, I memorized the dates and the names and the places and passed the tests and even took AP history and passed that exam so I wouldn't have to take history in college. And I think the reason that I wasn't interested in history is because it was presented as just a series of unrelated facts, and dates. And now here I am preaching through the meta-narrative. It's a history lesson of the world, and it's exciting to me. It's all connected. It's all according to God's purposes. You remember Darius the Mede, Daniel in the lion's den, and Darius was replaced by Artaxerxes I, and then Artaxerxes II, Uh, who allowed the exiles to return back to the land and even start rebuilding the temple. Then what happens? Now we're into the intertestamental period. Next comes Alexander the Great, who conquers most of the known world and is such a lover of Greek culture and Greek thought and Greek philosophy that he Hellenizes the world, uh, Hellenize Helen of Troy, become synonymous with Greek culture, um, brought the Greek language to the world. So now you've got this unified world with a unified language. What a perfect time for eventually Jesus to step into the world and spread the good news with a common language. After Alexander the Great dies in 323, he has no successor And so they divide his kingdom up after some skirmishes and small wars into four kingdoms. Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, The Ptolemic Empire, that's silent P, P P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, the Ptolemies, had Egypt and Israel... And then the Seleucid Empire, Syria, and other lands to the east. So the four great kingdoms. In 200 B.C., the Seleucids took over Israel. So it went from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. This is where the story of Antiochus Epiphanes comes into play. He stops allowing the Jews to worship in their temple, and he takes over the worship in the temple and slaughters a pig 
to Zeus in the temple. Insert gasp here. Slaughtered a pig, a, a dirty, unclean animal, on the t- on, in the temple to Zeus. The B- Bible refers to this event as the abomination of desolation. And we believe, at least my eschatology believes that in the end times, Antichrist will do something similar in the rebuilt temple. He will, he will um, demand worship of himself instead of the true God. A group called the Maccabees revolt after this happened, lead an uprising, and the Maccabeans take control of Israel and the temple and kind of run things from 167 to 140. If you're familiar with the apocryphal books of the Bible that the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church put in their Bibles, you've heard of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which talk about the story of the revolt. In 140, the Hasmoneans become the Jewish royal family, and they kind of run things in the temple from 140 to 37. In that time frame, from 140 to 37, is when Julius Caesar comes to power. Julius Caesar reigns from 100 to 60 B.C. From 60 to 50 B.C., you'll remember the term from history, the triumvirate. So Julius Caesar shares the throne with with two other ruling bodies. But from 49 to 44, he becomes the sole ruler of the empire. And then in 44 B.C., et tu, Brute, he's assassinated. From 43 to 31, the second triumvirate rules. And that's made up of Octavian, Antony, and the Roman Senate. And now we're kind of caught up to where our story begins because in 40 B.C., the second triumvirate sets up Herod the first as king of Judea. So when we pick up our story and they mention King Herod, that's the Herod. He begins the Herodian dynasty in Judea. He's not the only Herod you read about in the Bible. So this is Herod the Great, Obviously a humble man. Herod means song of the hero. No, he's, he's a narcissistic, arrogant leader. Calls himself king of the Jews. He's really an Idumean. He's not fully Jewish. The Idumeans are from the Edomites. Remember, the Edomites are from Esau. Esau trading his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Edom means red. And God curses the Edomites and blesses Jacob. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. After Herod's dynasty ends, you hear nothing more historically about the Edomites. God's prophecy of complete annihilation coming to pass. In order to keep peace with the Jews, Herod declared himself Jewish and married into the Hasmonean royal family, took on a wife, Miriam, and then later had her killed. Yeah, he was one of those brilliant psychopaths. He was an amazing ruler, but crazy as all get out. Pulling off some really brilliant political moves and then turning around and slaughtering half of his family to make sure nobody would take the throne from him. I believe, if I read correctly, Herod's mother-in-law testified against her own daughter at her trial. She was executed, and the mother-in-law tried to stage a coup, and she was executed as well. The man was paranoid, and when news of a king of the Jews being born reached him, you know how the story goes, he orders the slaughter of the innocents, all the 
young baby boys be killed because even though he claimed to be Jewish and should be excited about the Messiah coming, he was not excited about Messiah coming. He knew Messiah from Jewish lore would be the rightful king of the Jews and take David's throne. And he wasn't about to give up his power. He governed by a strange mix of kindness and cruelty. Uh, Once during a famine, he reduced taxes by two-thirds and melted down gold in the royal treasury so that his people could be fed. But then he would turn around and just publicly execute people just so no one got any crazy ideas of putting together a revolution. He taxed people heavily, but then used the taxes for public works projects. He kept people happy by keeping them working. He rebuilt the temple. It took over 40 years. So you keep people happy, it's the never-ending building project. Keep people employed. And if they're going to complain, and you're like, we're rebuilding the temple. Kind of hard to complain, right? It's brilliant. Of course, while he had him rebuilding the temple, he also had people building palaces for himself and the royal family, uh, amazing fortresses that he and the royal family could escape to in case of a revolution. He built the city of Caesarea, the port city. He was a master builder and, and um, even worked on some some techniques with cement and concrete that the world had never seen before. So, brilliant ruler. Like I said, kind of a brilliant psychopath. He's part of the the meta-narrative. Jesus didn't just appear in, in a void. There's real history going on. And as we look through the book of Luke, you need to understand this history Our method of Bible interpretation is called the grammatical, historical, literal method. We read the Bible using the normal rules of grammar, understanding the meaning based in the original context of history, and unless the text claims otherwise, we're going to take the literal meaning. We're not going to allegorize the words of the Bible. If you do that, you can make the Bible say just about anything you want it to say, and then God's word is nullified. You'll hear Nathan and I say this often. The meaning of the scripture is the scripture. The meaning of the scripture is a scripture. You could say, I have the scriptures. I have 52 Bibles at home. I have the scripture. But if you don't have the meaning, you don't have the scripture. You have a book of words. And even worse, if you replace the meaning with your own meaning. You wouldn't like that if someone did that to your words. You give your kids a command and they say, well, I think this means this. I think clean your room means go get an ice cream. Right. And so we find from the pages of Scripture the human tendency in our sin nature to twist the Word of God to fit our own agenda. And so we're careful not to do that. So we need to know the history. Herod was hated by the Pharisees. Herod was hated by the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the religious sect of people who wanted to achieve heaven through perfect living. They were self-righteous. And not only did they try to keep the law of Moses perfectly, they added their own rules to the law of Moses for good measure. In fact, in many cases, elevating their own rules above God's law. Because it's always easier to keep your own set of rules than God's rules, right? That's part of human nature as well. I'm really good at this, this, and this, so then I will use that as my standard for my own righteousness. And then we compare ourselves to people who don't do those things well, naturally, and say, look look how much more righteous I am than that person over there. The Pharisees wanted the temple rebuilt, but they wanted it rebuilt according to the plans laid out in God's word in Ezekiel. But Herod had his own blueprints in mind. And so they were mad at Herod. 
the Sadducees didn't care so much about the blueprints of the temple because they believed that the first five books of the Bible were God's word. And so as long as the temple uh, adhered to what was revealed to the Israelites about the tabernacle, they were fine. The Sadducees were less in number than the Pharisees, but maybe more powerful because they were on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling political uh, religious body of Israel. Yes, Herod's the king of the Jews, so to speak, and Pontius Pilate's the governor of Jerusalem, but it's the Sanhedrin that really had all the power, and the leader of the Sanhedrin was the chief priest. The Sadducees hated Herod because he chose the chief priests, not from among the Sadducees, but Jews from the outside. Why? Because Herod was a Jew from the outside. And he wanted to handpick his chief priest who would be in his back pocket. All the political intrigue. If you're really into that kind of stuff, what's that show, uh, House of Cards or something, you know, that stuff's child's play compared to what was really going on in, in history. Now, some Jews supported Herod. They were called the Herodians. They supported him because of his public work projects. But others were angry that their tax money was used to also finance pagan projects. At one point, Herod had a large golden eagle built outside the temple, which was the symbol of Rome. And the many Jews were angry that their tax money was being used to finance these these pagan projects. They took God's command seriously. You shall have no other gods before me and to use their tax money to work on... It's like us today where we're like, I don't want my tax money being used to fund abortions. Protect the Hyde Amendment. Which uh, people in our country are quietly trying to get rid of. And so this this is the what what historians call the milieu, uh, the environment in which Jesus steps into the world. Spiritually, Herod is a poser. He's not the true king of the Jews. In fact, all leaders compared to Jesus are posers. Leaders come and go, kingdoms rise up and they fall, but. As we saw this morning in Revelation 4, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. He shall reign forever and ever. Herod represents the world's attitude toward God. He leveraged religious sentiment for his own political gain and personal pride. And boy, do we see that with modern day leaders. If I can get the Christian vote, I'll act Christian-y. Unlike John the Baptist, Herod was not excited about Christ. He's the foil for John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to Herod to tell the world, prepare your hearts for Christ. The Messiah is coming. And he's greater than I am. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived until Jesus came along. And John said, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal." I baptize with water, but Jesus baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was excited about Jesus. Herod was not. Obviously, he ordered all those baby boys to be slaughtered and eventually ordered the killing of John the Baptist. So let's pick up the story in Luke Chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. See, it's, it's half a verse and you needed that background. Because Luke's readers would have known all that. And so we, we need to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Luke's original audience. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child. 
because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Remember we said that Luke's orderly account of the life of Christ was real history that could be verified by eyewitnesses. Everything in this first paragraph could be verified by eyewitnesses. Certainly there really was a Herod. He really was the king of Judea. There there were priests. There would be a record of priests. And when they served and on what day they entered the temple to offer incense to God, there would be a record of Zacharias and Elizabeth. There would even be records that she was barren and that this great miracle was about to happen. There would be people who were there that day who could remember and testify. You make up a story like this and it's not according to the truth, you're going to get called on it. And so we can have confidence that this is actual history. You have to understand that most priests never got the chance to offer incense in the temple. Most, most priests would never get that opportunity. They, they would serve in other capacities as a priest. And there were lots of priests, as long as you were in the right lineage. And both Zacharias and Elizabeth were in the priestly lineage. Not to say Elizabeth served as a priest, but her family was of the priestly line. She grew up around the men of her family serving as priests. She certainly knew what the priestly duties were and knew how important it was for that time in the life of a man when it was your turn to serve at the temple. And only one priest would go in to offer incense. And remember, the altar of incense is in the holy place outside the Holy of Holies. Now, they're not going to go into the Holy of Holies, but you're right there, right there on the other side of the curtain, and you're going to offer incense to the Lord. And the way they decided who would offer incense is they'd cast lots. They'd draw straws. And Zacharias drew the straw. He was going to fulfill a lifelong dream. I don't know of an analogy that would be fitting in our day and age. I mean, to be a priest and it's your turn to go to the temple and you get the lot, it's like winning the spiritual lottery. This is a high point of his life. And for a family who's barren, and it was believed in those days that if you were barren, it was judgment against you for some kind of sin. Some confirmation maybe. It's probably shocking to his fellow priests. Really, Zacharias, the, the barren family? God chose them? The text says that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And is there really any other kind of righteousness? You're either righteous in the eyes of the Lord or you're not righteous. I don't care what anyone else says. That's the title that matters. And if we're not careful, we may believe that the text is teaching that they were righteous in the eyes of the Lord because they walked blamelessly. That because of their good works and their blameless walk, they were righteous in the eyes of the Lord. But we know that other scripture teaches differently. And that is another way in which we interpret our Bible. It's called the analogy of the faith. More clear scriptures should always be used to interpret less clear. You can't build an entire system of works righteousness on this verse. So then, in what way were Zacharias and Elizabeth righteous in the eyes of the Lord? The same way everybody becomes righteous in the eyes of the Lord. They placed their faith in God for forgiveness of sins. They were placing their faith in a future Messiah. We place our faith in the Messiah who's already come. Their blameless walk is fruit of repentance. It's evidence of their saving faith. Your righteous behavior is evidence of your saving faith. It is not at all, not at all are your righteous works adding to your salvation. Christ died on the cross. It is finished. 
he paid the price. So then how could we be declared righteous in the eyes of the Lord? The scriptures teach us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God transfers Christ's righteous record to our account. And so God no longer sees our record, but his son's. And our filthy record gets credited to Christ's account on the cross. And God treats Christ the way we deserve to be treated, pouring out his righteous wrath on his son for our sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. It's the greatest bait and switch program ever. You trade in your filthy, unrighteous record for perfection simply through faith in Christ. And he takes on your straight F's, you get his straight A's. Now you are declared righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Notice the scriptures do not say they were righteous because they walked blamelessly. The word because is not there. Their righteous behavior is evidence of their saving faith. It's also intended to demonstrate that her barrenness was not because of sin. The world may have thought that, but here we have a record from God that their barrenness was not because of sin, but because God had something amazing cooked up. He was going to do a miracle through this barren woman who was advanced in age. Isn't that a nice way of saying she was really old? God's done this miracle before, has he not? In the Old Testament, you see the continuity between the meta-narrative of the Old Testament and the continuing meta-narrative of the New. It's not two complete, completely different stories. It's all the same story. And we're going to see a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Zacharias and Elizabeth in the new. Let's continue reading. So Zacharias is going to go into the holy place, offer incense on the altar. And for that hour while he's in there, everyone would be gathered around outside praying fervently. What a scene that must have been. There's thousands upon thousands of people praying out there in the courts outside the temple. And you got to wonder what was Zacharias going to pray? What would you pray for in that situation? Certainly we can lift our prayers to God through faith in Christ, boldly approaching the throne at all times, but this is a special moment in his life. Uh, literally a once-in-a-lifetime moment. What would you pray? How long did he prepare? What once he knew the lot was cast, did he write out his prayer? Did he rehearse it? Did he change his mind over and over again? I'm just taking my own human nature and trying to think, what would this be like? I think it would be maybe akin to being asked to pray at the presidential inaugural or something. Out loud. And millions of people are going to hear your prayer. What, what, what would you pray? What would be your petition? Certainly that God would be glorified. These are righteous people after all, Zacharias. He would care about God's glory, but do you think possibly he asked for a child? Would he be so bold as to ask for a child? It happened for Abraham and Sarah. You ladies out there, it's never too late. With, with God, all things are possible. It's kind of scary to a lot of people, probably. Yeah, give <laughs> nods. But how glorious that would be. So he goes into the temple and offers his prayer, and this is the last thing he was expecting would happen. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before 
God in the appointed order of his division according to the custom of the priestly office. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. That's understatement. And fear gripped him. That's more like it. And fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, which means Jehovah has been gracious. You will have joy and gladness, you think? And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the mother's womb. While yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow. 400 years of silence broken, and this is what the Lord reveals. That Elijah figure is coming. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. There's the literal meaning. Literal fathers and children, but there's the spiritual turning the hearts of the children back to the Father through repentance and forgiveness. And Gabriel uses this language directly from Malachi, connecting the Testaments. The last thing God says connected to the first thing he says 400 years later. Maybe the text indicates that that Zacharias did offer a, a prayer that they would have a baby. It was every woman's dream, every Jewish woman's dream to give birth to, to the Messiah. This, this John not being the Messiah, but they knew the promises. They knew Genesis 3.15, that through the seed of the woman, Satan's head would be crushed. They knew the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Every woman wanted to be that woman who gave birth to Messiah. And when you're as old as Elizabeth was, that dream was no more. And so this is exciting news. They would raise the son named John and they would keep him from wine. That points us back to Samuel and Samson. When God sets aside a, a man for a particular high position in his kingdom, sometimes he will have them take what's called the Nazarite vow and they will abstain from wine. We don't see anything here about not cutting his hair. It may, it may just be implied because that was also part of the Nazarite vow and they'd be careful not to touch anything unclean. Also points us forward, though, to Romans 12, 1, where Paul borrows some of this language and he says, based on everything he just taught in Romans 1 through 11 about our salvation, therefore I beseech you to live your lives as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he goes on to give a list of things that we should consider being a living sacrifice, including things we should abstain from. And as Christians, when we look at our salvation and all that God has provided for us in Christ, all those blessings in the heavenly places and a restored relationship with God, saying no to things the world 
says yes to no longer becomes a sacrifice. It becomes our joy. Now, I'm not preaching today that you should abstain from alcohol. The Bible says, do not be drunk, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. If drinking alcohol was a sin, then Jesus would have tempted those at the wedding of Canaan, turning water into wine. Jesus was accused by some of the Pharisees of being, as the King James puts it, a wine-bibber. So, and I know that there's these teachings that, well, some wine was fermented and other wine wasn't, and there's strong drink. and not. Folks, don't, don't play games with the Scriptures like that. Scriptures say, do not be drunk. And maybe the wise thing to do is abstain from alcohol so that you won't fall into drunkenness. The point being that John was set aside for a special purpose and the Nazarite vow precluded the Nazarites from drinking alcohol. I would commend to you today that you go before the Lord and you decide what things in your life you need to abstain from because they're getting in the way of you serving the Lord. Don't get all focused on alcohol when your problem is too much football. Too much secular music. Too many toys. Too many fancy things that you shouldn't be spending money on. You say, well, pastor, give us a list. I'm not giving you your list. You go before the Lord. And like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast from these things, you do it in private and you don't announce to the world like the Pharisees, oh, look at me, I haven't eaten in days because I'm so holy. What is getting in the way of you living your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord? I heard a story recently, uh, someone in the church uh, challenge someone else to stop drinking soda. And they said, well, I could stop. Can you? <laughs> and it was on. And uh, there's a, a group of men in the church that stopped drinking soda. And good for them. Good for them. You got to teach your flesh who's in charge. The Holy Spirit's in charge. John MacArthur has said, sometimes you need to say no to something that you have the right to say yes to just to make sure who's really in charge of the flesh. So the first revelation after 400 years connects us right to the end of Malachi's prophecy. And I want us to focus in today on the response. Because by extension, when we read the word of God, how do we respond? Zacharias heard the word of God audibly from the angel Gabriel. How did he respond? Not well. Not well. Here's his response. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. It's a very politically correct way. You know, he says, I'm an old man and my wife's advanced in years. So apparently you had to choose your words wisely back then as, as well. It may actually be an allusion to the fact that men often married women much younger than themselves back then. So there could have been maybe a 10, 20... 30-year gap in, in their ages. Now, how do we know that he didn't answer well? Because at first blush, we would say, that's a reasonable answer. You know, I, I don't want to go out and tell my wife, get her hopes up. You know, how will I know this will actually happen? And it connects us back to that meta-narrative in the Old Testament. Sarah, what? She laughed which is what the name Isaac means. She laughs. 
and they didn't trust the Lord. And, and Sarah said, he must mean that you need to be with my handmaid in Hagar. And that was not the child of promise. I think this reveals a very man-centered disposition on the part of Zacharias. He was more concerned about whether he would actually get a son than what the gift represented. It's like he missed the rest of the prophecy. He's going he's gonna to usher in the Messiah, and he's going to turn the hearts of the people. You know, wow! Well, how, how do I know we're really going to have a son? Because it's been a You see, the response is very man centered, which is normal for all of us. It shouldn't be the norm, but it is. And I don't think we probably would have responded any better. But listen to what Gabriel tells Zacharias. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Not many... uh, Created beings get to stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. That's how you know. I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to speak. How ironic after 400 years of silence, the first time God speaks to man, he strikes him mute because of his unbelief. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of... I'm sorry, not in the Septuagint. We're in the Greek. In the Greek, I am Gabriel is ego eimi. We've said that from the pulpit before. That, that's the name for God. I am. Not to say Gabriel is calling himself God. He's saying my words are God's words. These are God's words. And you will reverence God's word and you will believe God's word and you will trust God's word. And because of your unbelief, you will be mute. God's word, whether spoken by an angel or an apostle, is God speaking to us. This is God's word. I love this story from Sunday school recently. A couple brothers were talking, and one said, Boy, I wonder what God's word would really sound like. And his brother said, Well, read it out loud. <laughs> Amen. He, 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 he gets it. The second revelation, and that's the first revelation. Here's the second time God speaks to mankind after the intertestamental period. Let me, let me finish about Zacharias. He comes out of the temple. The people were waiting and wondering at his delay in the temple. What's going on in there? He should have been out by now. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And he realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. What a beautiful gift to Elizabeth. Vindication. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. What did I do to gain favor from the Lord? That's her humble response. What did, what did I do to gain favor from the Lord? Who am I? I'm just this lowly virgin betrothed to Joseph. Uh, a lowly carpenter. I'm not part of the royal family. I'm, I'm no one of nobility. By the way, how, do, how does Luke know this is what she was pondering? He said, well, the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Yes, but remember, the doctrine of inspiration includes 
the human authorship. Would, would Luke have known Mary? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. He certainly knew people who knew Mary. On the cross, Jesus told the Apostle John to take care of Mary. John lived to 100 A.D. Luke, Luke would have been able to interview John. You think Mary told this story a few times in her day? You think people asked her to tell the story again? What a great story. Tell us again about how the angel came to you. And, and she must have told them. And I, was, I remember pondering, what kind of salutation is this? Well, scriptures never do reveal why Mary found favor with God, so there's no point in trying to assume why. I chalk it up to God's just sovereign election. He chose Mary. The way he chooses anyone, not because of anything great we've done. The only criteria was she needed to be a virgin to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9, that unto us a child is born from from a virgin. Thank you. And that she needed to be of the line of David. Mary also fulfilled in part the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 that through the woman's seed one would come that would crush Satan's head. Satan would only bruise his heel. Mary being the vehicle through which God would fulfill that ancient prophecy. Paul says marriage is a picture of Christ's union with the church. And then he says it's a great mystery. And you're like, what? How, do, how does that work, Paul? Think this. Adam and Eve had perfect union with God before they sinned. Perfect union with God. Perfect relationship with God. When they sinned, that union was broken. And through the marriage union between man and woman, they would have offspring. And eventually, one of those offspring would reconcile the world back to God. Now listen to this. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And because she wasn't rebuked in the way that Zacharias was rebuked, we, we take this as a, a humble, honest question. She's not denying it's going to happen. She's just wondering how it's going to happen. I'm not married yet. I, I don't want to break God's commands. I don't want to sleep with Joseph before we're married. How is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Here's proof. Your relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. God can make this happen. If Adam and Eve had perfect union with God before they sinned and after they fell into sin, that union with man between Eve and Adam would bring a Savior. Look what happens here. That union with God is reestablished. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, And you will conceive. Adam was the first man in human history ever to be conceived without a conjugal union between man and woman. And every person who's ever been born since is through that conjugal union. But Christ, that union with God was reestablished miraculously, supernaturally. The Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and a child is conceived. It's reversing the curse. 
one could think of Mary as the, the second Eve. In the same way that Paul says that Christ is the what? Second Adam or the last Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded. However, stop the analogy right there and don't go any further. Mary needed a savior. And in fact, when we look at her Magnificat, her prayer, she says, this is my savior. The Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church teach that Mary was without original sin. They call it the Immaculate Conception. That's different than the virgin birth. Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church, as well as the Protestant faith, teaches that Mary was a virgin. The scriptures clearly teach that. Nowhere in the scriptures, though, is it taught that Mary was without sin. God, the Holy Spirit, protected Jesus in the womb from her sin. The first time this was taught in church history was by St. Augustine, who was extremely fond of his mother, and his mother was the greatest spiritual influence in his life. Historians think that is where he was kind of inspired to start talking about the sinlessness of Mary. She was a very pious woman and prayed for her son continually. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church has elevated her to sainthood. Her name's Monica, and it's where we get the name of the city, Santa Monica, St. Monica. The 4th century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, began to really teach this doctrine and the veneration of Mary became popular in the Eastern tradition. However, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the 12th century, taught against this doctrine. A Roman Catholic said it can't be substantiated by the Scriptures. But then it came back into vogue in 1854. Pope Pius IX declared it official Roman Catholic dogma that Mary was without sin. And since... She needed to be without sin so that the, the sin didn't pass through the blood to Christ. And since she was without sin, that would mean if she had any other children, they would be gods as well. And the church began teaching that James and Jude were cousins of Jesus, not brothers. The Greek clearly says idelphos, brother which in ancient Greek sources, 99.999% of the time means brother. But there's some obscure Greek texts that aren't biblical texts where a Adelphos was actually a cousin. Maybe in the same way that you would call a close family relative brother. Even though Scripture does not support the sinlessness of Mary, we would still say Mary should be blessed and honored. She is the mother of our Savior. But as she said herself, he was her Savior as well. We don't pray to Mary. We don't worship Mary. We pray to God the Father through faith in Jesus, prompted by the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. If Elizabeth and John point back to the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah, how much greater a miracle would the Messiah be, not just born of a woman who's old in age, which is pretty miraculous, but how about a woman who's a virgin? It's the greater miracle. Not since Adam has a man been made without human conception. He is indeed the last Adam. Jesus got it right where our father Adam failed. And aren't we thankful? Let's look at Mary's response, and this is where we'll close today. Because this is the right way to respond to God's revelation. And Mary said, Behold, the doulos of the Lord, the slave of the Lord, the bond servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's the way to respond to the word of God. 
I am the slave. You are the master. May it be done just as your word has been spoken. Looking for reasons to admire Mary. There you have it. There you have it. That is how you respond to God's word. It is said that the Bible is misogynistic and anti-woman and nothing could be further from the truth. Zacharias responding in a way that was rebuked. Mary responding in a way for all generations to see her example. May, May we respond like Mary to the word of God. Father, thank you for your word that reveals yourself to us in your plan of salvation. We say with Mary, we are slaves, no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness through faith in Christ. Oh, what a master you are, a good and righteous and faithful master filled with mercy and abounding in steadfast love. And your word even says that no longer will you call us slaves, but friends. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen. Amen.